Good morning, everyone. My name is Grant. I'm one of the pastors or elders here, if we haven't met before. And today we're carrying on in the book of Psalms. We're in a series called Prayer in the Psalms. And I guess this is our summer series. So we're doing some summer events like Adam's told you about already. But what we wanted to do this summer is look through the Psalms, study it, look at some of the different um, chapters in the book of Psalms and grow and learn more about prayer and learn more about God, and also learn more about coming to Him and speaking to Him, and hopefully grow our prayer muscles a little bit during the summer. Um, so we're going to be in Psalm 73 today. If you do have a Bible and want to turn there, otherwise it will come up in the screen. But uh, before we get there, there were a few things when I was growing up that I was told about that I thought were going to be a lot more important for me as an adult than they ended up being. And maybe you can think of some of those too. I know for me, like watching cartoons, I was pretty convinced quicksand was going to be a big deal growing up. I was like, two or three times a month, I'm going to have to call a friend, be like, I'm stuck, come quick, because this is, I, I could die, you know, this is, I was pretty sure this would be the way I would go, is quicksand would get me eventually, one day just going about my day. And then the other thing that I remember, maybe you don't, I think the quicksand thing you guys get, but growing up, I remember my mom having a strong conversation with me about reading people's diaries and journals. Do you guys remember that? No one. I remember like a lot of tween shows and like kids shows, they would talk about this, like you can't look at someone else's diary. And again, I was like, this is gonna be a big thing growing up. I'm gonna be really tempted to read other people's journals and I'm probably gonna mess up from time to time. And I do remember after my mom had this conversation with me, I remember going into my sister's room and looking for her journal and finding it a couple of times and reading through some of these entries of this 10-year-old girl just trying to find out the juicy details of her life. And now it just seems so ridiculous. Like I saw my sister 90% of the time. She was never up to anything wild. She was 10. I mean, she was 10 at the time. But when we come into the Psalms, one of the things we find is we're literally reading through people's journals and their like diary entries and their most vulnerable private prayers to God. Like I remember as a teenager pouring out my heart, like I probably journaled or diaried like five times in my life when I was a teenager, but writing these vulnerable things in my diary, just processing my thoughts. And I would hate for someone to have found those. And then I think about some of the prayers that I've prayed in my life, some just embarrassing things I wouldn't want people to know, and then some really intimate, private, personal prayers where I'm feeling insecure and I need God's help or feeling overwhelmed and I need Him to break in, that I would be embarrassed for someone else to hear. And when we come to the Psalms, that's what we get, is this curated book of prayers and poems and hymns, which are really taking us into people's prayer journals or diaries and showing us the things that they brought before God. And I think there's such power in that. I'm so grateful my prayers are not in there. But I think there's such power in that, that we get given these as examples to learn from. And also we get given these prayers as permission. They're given to us to show us the kinds of things that we can bring to God that we might otherwise disqualify and just say, I can't talk to God about this. You know, this is off limits. For, for whatever reason, somehow we've internalized the fact, I can't bring this area of my life to God. Or maybe we don't even think about it. You know, we're just busy living our lives. We are feeling overwhelmed or burdened by something, but we just think, oh, you know, don't even think of bringing it to Him. We, he would so love us to bring these to Him in prayer. So the Psalms gives us examples and it gives us permission and it helps us to engage with our emotions and our needs and our wants and to bring them to God in faith. And what we're going to do today is we're going to be looking at Psalm 73 and the way that Asaph prays. 
And one of the things we see with him and with a lot of the different Psalms is the ways that people engage with their emotions. And I don't know the way you do, but there's probably three ways, two ways in our culture and one way that the Psalms show us that we can engage. I think the first way I'll call the religious way of dealing with our emotions, and that's kind of like denial. You know, we feel something and we try and push it down and suppress it because we don't think our feelings or emotions are good things that have been given to us by God as a gift. You know, we, so we feel this thing strongly and we think, I, I don't want that to come out. I don't want to talk to anyone about that. I definitely don't want to bring this to God. So I'm just going to stuff this down, maybe with embarrassment or maybe because it doesn't seem proper or right to share this with someone else. And I'm going to hide it away. Um, I would say this is what I was taught growing up is to deny your feelings. You know, I, I grew up in a household where my parents didn't teach me how to process them, how to know what I was feeling. They didn't ask me about what I was feeling and how I was doing. I remember one particular time, my best friend was moving back to Ireland. He was an Irish kid. And I remember my mom sitting with me in bed while I cried. That's the only time I remember my parents helping me process my emotions. Might've happened a bunch of other times. I just don't remember it. And I remember learning this when internalizing this message that feelings exist, they're real, they're a thing, they're just not something that you share with others or ask for help with. They're something you kind of deal with on your own. Don't know if you guys remember this picture. This is one of the memes I really, really like, but this is kind of the feeling I had about feelings. If it comes up, this is me. It's like you're feeling a lot of things and you're like, it's fine. This is fine, don't worry about this at all. So I would just deal with it on my own, not with help from people, not with help from God, just me. This is fine. There's probably a bunch of other ways, but in our culture, one of the ways that we deal with feelings is not pushing them down, not ignoring them, not denying them, not dealing with them on our own, but actually thinking, like these feelings rule. You know, I've got to follow my heart. I've got to do the things that I feel. These things are right. Shell um, often jokes with me about this, because we had a situation with my parents the one time where um, I was talking about just craving a meat pie I know that's not really like a common thing here, but it was something I just loved back home. Anyone had a meat pie from Pop Pie before? It's, it's life-changing, guys. I would be down to be sponsored by Pop Pie for their pies. A good steak and pepper pie, a little Aussie pie from Popeye is incredible. Good lunch suggestion for today. But it is also probably your full caloric intake for the day. It's carbs, it's gravy, it's meat, it is heavy. And when I said this, Shell said to me, Grant, don't do that. It's gonna make you so sleepy, it's gonna make you tired. It's just like a food brick you're gonna put in your stomach. I was like, ah, oh, but I want it. And my mom interjects and says, no, Grant, that's your body's way of telling you that you need this. Like, if you're craving something, your body's saying you need those nutrients. She'll just like, she had to walk away. She's like, this is wild. And there've been a number of situations where my mom's like nutritional understanding and knowledge has just been exposed and has really concerned my wife and tells you a lot about how I was raised. But I was taught that if you crave something, if you want something, it's your body's way of saying you need it. And I think our culture does that kind of thing with feelings. As if you feel something, it must be right. It must be something you need, it must be good. So to deny yourself, something that Jesus calls us to do. Mark 8 verse 34, if anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross, deny himself, and follow me. What Jesus says is in direct contrast with one of the loudest messages in our culture when it comes to feelings. And our culture is teaching us that actually we must follow our heart, that feelings can define reality, that 
our feelings can become so strong that they become sovereign over our lives rather than God. And feelings can rule and reign in the place that God is meant to. So this idea of denying yourself, this idea of not doing the thing that you crave or want or desire, almost becomes this cultural heresy. It's so wrong. It becomes almost the worst sin to deny yourself because the culture's interpretation of how we should follow our feelings and our heart is so strong. So if those are two ways we can respond to feelings and emotions, the Psalms gives us a third way. If the one way is to deny and push down and ignore and the other is to follow wholeheartedly, then the third way that the Psalm shows us is a different way, the way I'd encourage us to respond to. And one of the things we've said is that in the Psalms, we do see emotions and feelings shared so rawly. We looked at Psalm 88 a few weeks ago. Brad spoke uh, about some of the challenges in the Psalms last week and looked at Psalm 109, just some of the really strong language and feelings that were exposed. And we see that feelings are not ignored in the Psalms. They are they're brought to the surface and they are raw. I honestly feel uncomfortable sometimes with the language that is used in the Psalms. The feelings that are shared, the needs, the struggles, the wants, the desires. But what we also learn in the Psalms is that God doesn't struggle with them. God doesn't struggle with our strong feelings. He's bigger than our emotions. He knows that we need to bring those things to Him, that we need to process in some way, that, that we have doubts and we wrestle and we have needs and we're confused and we need to ask questions and we need to deal with these things somewhere. And the Psalms show us that those strong feelings or emotions we have are not something to be suppressed or something to be followed, but something that are to be brought to Him in faith. By faith, the psalmists are praying through their feelings. They're processing them in the presence of God with Him, giving language to it and asking God to meet them in those places. And today, as we get into Psalm 73, I think we're going to feel, or we're going to experience some really strong feelings, some strong emotions, and some strong effects of those things on people. And I'm hoping as we get into Psalm 73 today, you are helped to engage God with what's going on inside you, whether that's now or in the weeks, months, and years to come. So Psalm 73 verse 1 says this, God is indeed good to Israel. Now you might go, that's great. I'm glad God's good to Israel. What does that mean for me? Maybe this morning we can just say, the church or the people of God, God is indeed good to his people, to the pure in heart. But as for me, my feet almost slipped. My steps nearly went astray. Why is that? For I envied the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So this is our introduction to Psalm 73. This is our introduction to what's going on inside of Asaph and what he's dealing with. And what he says is he is in the grip of envy, which is something we don't often talk about in church, probably don't talk often with other people about, the, the envy we feel. And we get to see here how strong and impactful the envy that he was dealing with was on his life. Now, for some of you in this room, you're like, I know that this is a struggle for me. I, I know that I envy other people. For others, uh, you don't realize yet that you struggle with envy because this is something we all deal with. It just might not be something that's popped to the surface yet or something that we're aware of or something that's been exposed. But to envy is to want someone else's life or at least to want part of it. Can anyone relate? <laughs> you don't have to raise your hands, but have you ever looked at someone and said, I wish I had that. I wish that was me. I wish I could do that thing, have that thing, go to that place, succeed in that way. I wish I had their life or part of their life. 
So envy is also to feel that not only do they not deserve their good life, but that you do, and that God has not been fair to you by not giving you this kind of life. To go a little bit deeper, I'll just admit, that's something I've felt. God, this is not fair that they have that and I don't. Frederick Buchner wrote, envy is the consuming desire to have everybody else as unsuccessful as you are. It's kind of getting worse and worse as we go through these definitions, right? <laughs> you might go, yeah, I envy, but you don't want to admit that you do that. Just think like, I don't mind, you know, like how, however well they do, as long as they don't do better than me. You know, I don't mind us all doing the same, but ideally I'd be a little bit far ahead of everyone else. They'd be just behind me. That, that would be the dream. But really envy is bringing everyone else down to your level. Or even yet like a little bit behind. And probably the reason we don't want to admit this is because envy is a, like a type of spiritual self-pity. Where we feel this ourselves, and we look down on others and we struggle with God. And when we envy and when we feel this, one of the things we, we don't admit is that we are sinners and that God has been good to us in so many ways. We lose sight of that. And we also lose sight of the fact that God doesn't owe us any of those things necessarily. We might want them, but he doesn't necessarily owe them to us. And as we feel this envy and this desire for other things, it starts to drain the goodness and the joy out of the life that we have and out of the many good things we do have in our lives because we don't have what they have. Make sense? And this um, isn't a little insignificant thing. You might go, okay, Grant, thank you. Thanks for the definition. I appreciate it. I know what envy is. I know I envy. I know I need to stop it. Let's pray. Let's go home. This is just the introduction to Psalm 73. Asaph admitting that envy impacted him significantly. But this envy that he was feeling inside of his heart isn't just something that he becomes aware of, but it's something that nearly costs him his faith in his life. Which would surprise me. Like the thought that actually me envying others could cause me to turn my back on God and turn in a different direction. But in verse 10, what Asaph says is because of his envy, he nearly slipped and fell. He nearly slipped and fell. That his feet nearly went astray off of God's path down some other path. Other translations say that he nearly lost his foothold. And you don't need a foothold when you're just walking down the street. I know some of you walked here today. You don't need a foothold when you're just walking on flat ground. You need a foothold when you're climbing, when you're rock climbing, when you're climbing a cliff, when you actually need security that actually, if I put my foot in place here and use it to push off of, that it's going to hold. I need that so that I can climb and go where I need to go. He nearly lost his foothold. He nearly fell. He nearly died. And what the psalmist is saying here is, I nearly lost my faith. I nearly rejected God. I nearly turned away. I was on the edge. I was in a dangerous place. And we all want to say, why? Like, why was he feeling this so strongly? And the answer is, for I envied the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, let me tell you a little bit more about Asaph before we carry on in the psalm. In 1 Chronicles 6 and 2 Chronicles 5, we find out that Asaph was a priest. He was a Levite. He was hired by David to lead worship or singing in the temple. So this is a, a godly man. This is a spiritual leader. In fact, we, we see, like very obviously today, that God even used Asaph to write some of the scriptures, Psalm 73 and some other of the Psalms. So this is a, a man who knows God, who leads people to know and worship God, who you'd assume is like further ahead in the journey of like the spiritual life than we might be. 
And here Asaph is giving an example of how he has struggled in some very ordinary ways with these doubts and distractions that all of us feel, and it nearly cost him his faith. Even though he's in this place of maturity and spiritual strength, he nearly walked away from God. And we see in verse 3 where Asaph's doubts come from. In verse 3 he says, I saw. So like where his attention was, what he was focused on, what he was seeing led to this place of doubt and distraction. He's seen the lives of others, and he's seen the way the world works, and he's starting to feel this injustice around how other people are doing versus him. He's seeing that these other people are having really good lives, and things are going really, really well for them. And then he looks at his own life, and he thinks, why don't I have the same? Why am I feeling this way? Why am I struggling in this way? Why don't I have what they have, at least most of it? And it caused him to doubt God and turn from God. So he envies the wicked. And he looks at the lives of these people that he calls wicked, people that he would say are not followers of God. He, he looks at the way that they live, and he thinks, how can it be that God allows them to have this kind of life? They've got his definition of the good life. And he thinks, how? Like, God, why would you do that? Why would you allow them to have this? I have all of these troubles, and I'm trying to follow you. I'm trying to serve you. I come to a gathering on Sundays, I, I pray, I give generously, I serve, I, I try to obey your commands, I, I try to live a godly life, and they don't, they don't care about any of these things. And I've got all of these struggles and needs and desires, but they have everything that you could want, man. They have everything that I want. They've got the good life, and I've got this difficult life that I'm living right now. He's looking at them and he's saying, shouldn't they have terrible karma for the way that they've lived? but it seems like everything is going their way. And for me, nothing seems to be going my way. It's not right. So he questions and he doubts, and he nearly loses his faith or his foothold because of what he sees and the envy he feels inside. There's this quote I love from Tim Keller. He says, doubts come when personal experience makes what your mind knows unreal to your heart. Let me read that one more time. Doubts come when personal experience makes what your mind knows unreal to your heart. And Asaph knows a lot about God. He knows theology. He knows God is good. He knows God loves him. He knows God's for him. He knows that God is a good king. He knows that God rules and reigns over everything and is in control of the world. He knows all of these theological pieces in his mind, but he's having a personal experience right now which is making him doubt what is going on because he sees the lives of the wicked and how prosperous they are and how well they're going. And he just cannot make sense of it. He can't join these things together. It's cognitive dissonance, these two ideas just clashing in his brain and his heart. And his feelings and his experience in that moment are overshadowing what he knows to be true and nearly shipwreck his faith. I love um, what it says in verse one of the Psalm. I find it so helpful kind of going over these words and playing around with them over and over. So in verse 1, he writes, God is indeed good to Israel. Indeed isn't the kind of word you use when you're just thinking about something. He's using the word indeed because he's wrestled and he's doubted and he's come back to the fact to believe God is truly good. I doubted it. He nearly walked away. He's researched. He's looked at the evidence. He's looked at all of this. And he's come to the conclusion again that God is not good, but indeed good. And he serves as a guide for us. 
for those of us in this room that maybe right now are struggling, we're saying, why does my life not look the way I thought it would look? Why does my life not look the way I want it to look? And why do theirs? Like, God, this doesn't feel fair. And maybe it's not fair. But he's able to go through that journey and that experience and to say on the other end of it, God is indeed good. God is indeed good. That's what he wants to encourage us with today. That despite our experience and our feelings and the injustice we see and experience, that God is indeed good. These first three verses in Psalm 73 are really important to us, understanding the psalm, but also understanding how our hearts work. And Asaph writes here and says, God is indeed good to the pure in heart. What does that mean? You know, because we can leave really discouraged by this. We can feel like, well, I've been trying to be pure in heart for years, and I keep failing at it, so why would God be good to me? Maybe if I was better, then God would be good to me, but I get why he's not. But I think Brad said something so helpful last week. He, he said, to be pure in heart doesn't mean to be perfect. It means as we try and follow God, what we're doing is we're repenting when we fail. We're turning back to God when we fail. And that is a life of righteousness. But there's something else to purity of heart, not just uh, about what we do, but about who we are internally. To be pure in heart is to want after one thing. Purity is about being of one substance. I, I remember when I went and chose my wife's engagement ring, looking under that like um, little thing at the diamond, looking under that thing at the, the gold, and you're looking for impurities and you're deciding, what can I deal with? You know, can't afford a ring that's like this, but I can deal with this, but can I deal with the impurities of it? And when we talk about a pure heart, we're talking about a heart that has no impurities. It's after one thing alone. It's consumed with one thing. And our desire would be that we would be pure of heart, that we would want one thing alone, God, that we would choose Him. And the little impurities which are there with all of us would be bringing before Him and asking Him to deal with and purify and cleanse and take away. God is indeed good to the pure of heart. But on the other hand, the, the arrogant, the people He's envying and comparing Himself to, they're not pure of heart. They're after other things. They're not interested in God at all. Their heart might be impure and it might be consumed with all of these different things, but there's no desire or pursuit of God inside of them. Their heart's after other things. And what we see here is this purity of heart he's speaking about is about an attitude of our heart, an internal attitude. And we're learning something significant in the psalm. What it's trying to teach us is that our attitude is more important than our experience. He's going through a hard moment, but as he changes his attitude that we'll see in just a few minutes, it all changes for him. Our attitude is more important than our experience. What happens in these two circumstances as we go through Psalm 73 is we see his perspective changes and he changes. So he can be in the same circumstance with a different attitude and a different result. I think maybe this is an example that comes to mind because I'm a pastor, but I've definitely seen that on Sundays in church gatherings like this. Two people come into the same space with different attitudes. Same singing, okay songs, okay singing, okay preaching, group of people coming together, taking communion, praying, doing things, nothing fancy, nothing wild, nothing wow, but solid. And two people with different attitudes come into the same space. And one person walks out and goes, wow, just so amazed at God's goodness, just so encouraged by the word, so beautiful to sing those songs together, just head lifted, perspective changed, encouraged. 
And someone else can walk out and say, that was such a waste of time. I got nothing out of that. That was boring. That was so dull. It's like two very different attitudes in the same space leading to two very different experiences of something. Restored, what we see in Psalm 73 is that our attitudes have more impact on us than our circumstances do. And we see that our attitudes to a large degree determine our experience of life. Let's see what the psalmist sees as he goes through this crisis of faith and he looks at the wicked and compares himself to them. From verse 4 to verse 12, they have an easy time until they die and their bodies are well fed. They're not in trouble like others. They're not afflicted like most people. Therefore, pride is their necklace and violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge out from fatness. The imaginations of their hearts run wild. They mock and they speak maliciously. They arrogantly threaten oppression. They set their mouths against heaven and their tongues strut across the earth. Therefore, his people turn to them and drink in their overflowing words. The wicked say, how can God know? Does the Most High know everything? Look at them, the wicked. They're always at ease and they increase their wealth. So I kind of broke that down and contemporized that for us a little bit. Just thought I'd kind of bring this into 2023 because I know that language can trip us up a bit. But what the psalmist is saying about the people he envies is he looks at them and he says they have easy lives, lots of great food and drink, no troubles, they do what they want. Kind of sounds like the dream in San Diego in 2023. They're free, they've got options and opportunities, they're rich and successful, they say what they want and they don't care even if it hurts others. They don't mind about other people. They don't even think about them. They do what they want, when they want, how they want. They're healthy, wealthy, and free. And this is the kicker for him. They curse and mock God. They're not even interested in God, and nothing happens to them. And Asaph just can't get his mind around this. How can nothing happen to them, even though they mock God and reject him? And because of all of these things, they see no need for God in their lives. What could they possibly get from God? They've been able to give themselves everything that they need and their lives are going just great. And Asaph says this after seeing their experiences. This is his response in verse 13 and 14. Did I purify my heart and wash my hands in innocence for nothing? For I'm afflicted all day long and punished every morning. It's like Asaph is saying, why me? <laughs> why not them? You know, I've done the right thing. I've done the Christian thing. I've done the obedience thing. I've tried to follow you, God. I've tried to please you. I've tried to do all of the things that I've been taught are right. And still, they don't. And their lives are great. And mine is hard. What is going on? How is this fair? The message version translates this idea this way. It says, I've been stupid to play by the rules. What has it gotten me? A long run of bad luck, that's what. A slap in the face every time I walk out the door. I was so struck by that line. I've been stupid to play by the rules. What has it gotten me? Or maybe you're feeling like that today. You know, you've been following Jesus for a long time, been a Christian for a long time, been in church for a long time. And you're like, what has it gotten me? You know, how's it helped me to serve God in these ways? It hasn't given me what I wanted. I look at their lives, that's what I want. I haven't gotten what I wanted. That, that's exactly what's going on with Asaph here. I wouldn't ask you to raise your hands, but is that how you feel this morning? Because that's how the psalmist, that's how Asaph felt as he wrote the psalm. 
Verse 15. If I had decided to say these things aloud, I would have betrayed your people. When I tried to understand all this, it seemed hopeless until I entered God's sanctuary. This is like a pivot moment, a significant change in the psalm. Then I understood their destiny. Indeed, you put them in slippery places. He, he was worried about his foot slipping. Now he sees that they are slipping. You make them fall into ruin. How suddenly they become a desolation. They come to an end, swept away by terrors, like one walking from a dream. Lord, when arising, you will despise their image. What has changed for Asaph there in that moment in verse 17? It's a perspective thing. He's just been looking horizontally at what's going on around him. He's looking at their lives, and then he's looking internally at his own life. And he's struggling with that. But when he comes into the temple, when he comes to a church gathering like this, it's like his perspective changes. His head is lifted vertically to see God and be reminded of who he is and what he's like. And as that happens, it's like the light goes on, like a, a switch is flipped for him. He's lost sight of the reality of God, and he's only seeing the reality of what happens horizontally. Verse 17, until I entered God's sanctuary. And in this place, his perspective is changed. It's like, it really does feel like it was a moment of just clarity. It's like he was so wound up by this, but he just seems settled as soon as Psalm, uh, verse 17 happens. He's settled, he's at peace, he's got clarity. His faith is rescued. His foot that was about to slip is now firmly in place. And his response is to repent. He repents to God over the things that he's been feeling and doing. He, he repents to God over the way he'd been responding to him. He turns back to God where he was turning away. You see, he realizes his soul was saturated. It was waterlogged. It, it was full to the brim with discouragement and envy, and he had no room for anything else. And it's like in this moment, he pours it all out before God and is able to be filled with the perspective that God gives him of, of who he is and what he's done. Gives him a complete fresh light to all of it. God meets with him in this space. How many of us in this room have had that uh, situation where we're feeling at least a bit like Asaph is feeling? We're, we're feeling discouraged, we're feeling a bit fed up. And we come into a space like this, or a GC space, where we just make time to pray and be with God. And it is like something just changes inside of us. We leave there almost just feeling a bit different, having different perspective. Some of those things fading away. One of the songs we sing to August quite often, that's our three-year-old daughter, is a song that I learned when I was young, which I found to be so true and so full of spiritual truth. It says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. I'm not going to sing it for you. You don't want that. But the words are good. The singing would be bad. The words are good. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of the earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And that's what's happened for Asaph in the psalm. The things of this world are not strangely dim. They are loud and they are large and they're overwhelming everything else for him. But he comes into the presence of God and it's like everything flips. His perspective changes. He sees God in that large way and the things of the earth get strangely dim and he leaves not carrying the weight of them in the way that he was before. I want to encourage us, when we make time to meet with God, he meets with us. He meets with us in those places. 
And Asaph, as he comes into the temple, as he comes into the sanctuary, as he comes into God's presence, he realizes a few things about envy that he hadn't seen before. He realizes that envy wears you down. He realizes that envy makes you bitter. And he realizes that when we envy, we forget eternity. And we get stuck very much in what's going on now, what we want now, the temporary, what's right in front of us, rather than looking and living with a long-term view of life and God and everything. Asaph has the shift from the horizontal to the vertical, and it frees him from just the burdens he's carrying and how bound he feels. Verse 21 says, When I became embittered and my innermost being was wounded, I was stupid and didn't understand. I was an unthinking animal toward you, yet I am always with you. You hold my right hand. It's completely flipped. I mean, I, I don't want to put that on anyone today, but he says, I was stupid in those moments, feeling those things. He's completely changed the way he thinks. And the thing that stood out to me in verse 23 there, which I found so strange, is he says, I am always with you. You know, I, I think I've taught in this series that God is always with us. His promises, I'll never leave you or forsake you. It's one of the most common promises in the scriptures. But here Asaph says, I am always with you. It seems like a weird way of putting it. Like, God, don't worry. I'm going to be with you through these things. But the only way I can understand this is that his perspective is flipped. He knows, it's, it's old truth that he knows that God will be with him. But here it's like he's saying, I will be with God. In these moments when I envy and I struggle and I'm confused, I will be with God because he is with me and he holds my right hand. It's this beautiful picture of God's intimacy. It's like he's got a fresh perspective of God with him through all of the things that he goes through, whatever it might be. Asaph is seeing so much clearlier now. So let's end with these last few verses. He says, you guide me with your counsel and afterward you will take me up in glory. Who do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those far from you will certainly perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, God's presence is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, so I can tell about all you do. In the book of Job, when Job has lost everything, he asks God for a reason. God, why have you allowed this to happen? Why do I have to go through this? And God doesn't give him a reason. Rather than giving Job answers, God answers Job by pointing to himself and his presence and his power and his glory. Because God knew something that Job didn't. It was that Job didn't need answers. He needed God. Job didn't need answers, he needed God. And for Asaph, it's the same thing. Before coming into the temple, he's got a lot of questions. He's really confused by what's going on. He's focused on all of these things going on around him and everything he doesn't have. And it's really tripping him up. But after coming into the temple and seeing God and being in his presence and encountering his glory and being reminded that he is good, Asaph is settled. This doesn't mean that asking questions is wrong. It doesn't mean seeking truth is wrong. There's great answers out there for our questions. There's great apologetic books and sermons that can help us to understand the hard questions about God. 
But for Asaph, what he needed wasn't an answer. He needed an encounter with God. He needed to be reminded of who he was, and that changed everything for him. Verse 25 and 26 are two of the verses that I think are the most beautiful in the whole of the Bible. Who do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but you. I hope one day that I could truly and honestly say that fully. That in heaven and on earth, God is all that I desire. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Asaph is relearning to value God in the way that he truly should. That God is the treasure of this world, that God is the treasure of the universe, that God is the ultimate treasure. And he's learning to live in light of that truth because other things have started to look pretty valuable and pretty beautiful to him. And he's being reminded of these things, that the Lord is everything. I remember on my 21st birthday, I read the verse Deuteronomy 30 verse 20. It says, the Lord is your life. And it just, it impacted me. Because so often that's not the way I live. The Lord, yeah, the Lord's great. <laughs> but all of these other things are so easily my life. But what Asaph is experiencing here is that the Lord is our life. The Lord is our life. And he's letting go of the other things he's holding on to and the bitterness and envy which is weighing him down. And he's coming to be with God and meet with God and enjoy God and seek God because he's realizing that in this life and into eternity, God is worth more than anything else. So he chooses to follow him. And we get to witness this journey that Asaph goes on from the beginning of the psalm. A place of deep envy, a place of deep struggle, a place of deep need, and as he processes this and he comes into God's presence, he experiences freedom and joy and lightness and love. If you could close your eyes where you are, I would love you to think through what has stood out to you from the psalm this morning. And to think, is there anything or anyone that I'm envying which is tripping me up? and which might be causing me to slip. Is there anything right now that you're believing, I need more than Jesus? Or will satisfy me more than God can? And I'd love you to trust Asaph as a guide and to let that bring you to a place of coming to God with that envy and coming to God with that desire and that need. And if you don't believe what I'm saying today, if you don't believe what Psalm 73 is saying, that's okay. But what I'd encourage you to do is do what we've been learning in the Psalms is to bring that to God. To bring that doubt to God, to bring that question to God, to bring that hesitancy to God. And I'd encourage you to ask God to show you whatever it was that he showed Asaph.
Asaph was changed in a moment in verse 17 as he was reminded of God and his goodness. And he could say, whom have I in heaven but you? And the earth has nothing I desire besides you. Jesus, I just ask for each one of us in this room now for just the right valuing of you. That we would see how beautiful you are, how good you are, how you are greater than anything we might desire. I pray you would shift our perspective like you did Asaph's. As, as his change perspective led to like a completely different attitude and experience of life. I pray that would be the same for me. I pray I would be deeply satisfied in you. And I pray that would be the same for us, that we would be a church that is so satisfied in who you are and what you've done. That we would trust in you and hold to you and enjoy you and love you. I pray in some of the deep places of our heart where maybe we don't even know that we envy or maybe we don't even know that we believe these lies, that these other things are better than you or will satisfy us more than you are. I pray you'd come into some of those places and expose them, Jesus, but also that you would come into those like holes that lack you and you would fill them. Pray we would learn to be a deeply satisfied people, a people who know you and are full of you. Communion is a beautiful moment to remember that Jesus satisfies and to remember that he satisfies in a deeper and fuller way than anything else. And we're going to come up and take that in just a moment. But my encouragement to you this morning would be that if there is anything you want to bring to God, bring that to him before you come up and then come forward. And the bread's okay. The juice is okay. But as you eat and drink of it, just to remember and be reminded of how Jesus does satisfy us more than anything else. And if you're struggling to believe that today, that's okay. But as you eat and drink, would you believe that what Jesus has done is the greatest thing? Would you ask him to show you more fully how great he is, how great the cross was, how great his bloodshed for us was, and to live into and enjoy and be satisfied by what he's done? As we close here, uh, Grant, thanks so much. That word is very encouraging and convicting. Um, and I just wanted to point out how clear the gospel is in these last few verses of the psalm that Grant chose. Um, in verse 27, the writer says, Those far from you will certainly perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. And that sounds kind of harsh. It kind of sounds like bad news. But actually, sometimes... Um, God's justice is good news. Um, and I'll get to the rest of the other verses here in a sec, but um, yesterday, my wife and I were driving home from the beach, and I got to this intersection, uh, University, Ralph University, and 805, and it's a four-way stop, and the car gets there to the left, the car gets there to the right before me, and then I show up, and then someone else shows up after me across the intersection, and I'm watching this guy, I'm like, big truck. This guy's totally going to try to like roll past me. So I wait for the guy on the left to go, the guy on the right goes, and this truck starts going when it's my turn. And I'm so mad. So I start like pulling out 
and turning, and he's not stopping, and I'm not stopping, and Allison's freaking out because we're playing chicken, and she's like, stop, stop, stop. And I'm like, no, it's my right to go. I have right of way. And so I kind of like do like a Z, basically, like around him, and he's just like looking at me. I'm like, her. And he probably sees that my wife's yelling at me, and I'm in big trouble. But I... Uh, I make it out beforehand. I was like, yes, justice is done. You know, that's how I was feeling. And, um, but my point was, I didn't need to do that because it's God's job, God's job to be the judge and to bring justice. And actually, when we believe this, we remember it, it actually prevents us from getting revenge and actually prevents violence. It's like, this isn't my job to like right every wrong, like um, the policeman of the, the road while I'm driving everywhere, right? Because God is actually going to bring justice at the end of the world. And when I remember that, not only do I not feel like I have to like beat, the, I could just let him go. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have lost any time, right? <clears throat> and Allison's also like, I'm on this side of the car, okay? Like gamble with your own money, buddy. <laughs> it doesn't take me long also to realize like, hey, you know what? I'm not the perfect driver. And in this next verse, it says, as for me, God's presence is my good. God's presence in me is my good, not my own actions. I think that's so helpful to remember. And it doesn't take long for me to remember that and to remember, like, actually, I should have compassion on this guy because he's not perfect. He needs God's salvation also. It actually can move my heart towards enemy love um, pretty quickly. And the last thing, too, it says, it says, um, I've made God, the Lord God, my refuge, so I can tell about all you do. And it's just such a reminder of, like, the Great Commission. It's like, this is good news that we're hearing about, like Grant was preaching this morning, we have in this psalm. And, like, let's share this with people in our lives, people around us who don't know this, who um, they don't have God's goodness, who they don't have a God who's going to bring justice. Um, so let's not be shy about sharing this. So I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then uh, we'll, we'll take off. Um, our Father, I'm grateful that you don't let wrongs go unrighted. Um, the wrongs that that I've committed, that we've done, were actually um, were judged to Jesus on the cross. And we're, we're grateful um, that he sacrificed his life for us and that we don't have to go around judging others, we don't have to envy others, that you're going to right every wrong. Um, and that we can have an attitude that um, our contentment in you is enough. We don't need what other people have. We can be um, content with you is enough this week. Uh, we love you so much. Amen.